Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, and Chris Smith. It's time, actually, to welcome back home from his holes, the lovely naked scientist, Dr. Chris. Hello, Chris. Welcome back. It's lovely to Thank have you. you back. It's good to be here. Let's start with our first question. Um, this has come via uh, Facebook. He says, it's from Tom, and he says, uh, I love to catch a podcast, um, and a podcast even. If fire needs air, where does the sun get air from to burn? Good question. Hello, Tom. Well, the answer to this is that the sun is actually quite a special kind of fire. The sun is actually a giant fusion reactor. Nuclear fusion is where you take small substances, small elements, and you squeeze them together very, very hard, and you make two things become one thing. Actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that, because what the sun is doing is turning hydrogen, the lightest element known to exist in the universe, and it's squeezing four atoms of hydrogen together to make one atom of helium, which is twice as heavy as hydrogen is, and it's also producing some other particles, uh, including neutrons, neutrinos, and photons. In other words, light, and that means infrared, heat, and also visible uh, light that we can see, and also things like gamma rays and x-rays. So the sun is a very special kind of fire. It's a fusion reactor, and therefore it doesn't need oxygen to burn, it just squeezes things together very, very hard because the sun is so massive. In fact, um, it's million plus times heavier than the Earth is at least. Um, and as a result, you're squeezing things together under incredibly high pressures. And that is enough to overcome the natural repulsion of atoms against each other. So they fuse together. Normal things that combust do actually need oxygen here on Earth, of course. Um, but you can use other substances to promote combustion. If you take a candle, for example, and put it into chlorine, it will burn in an atmosphere of chlorine. So you don't just need oxygen to make fires burn. Anything that's oxidizing, in other words, it wants to grab electrons from something, can actually make the process of combustion, as we know it, occur. So the bottom line here is that the sun is a giant fusion reactor. It doesn't need oxygen because it's doing nuclear fusion. In fact, the sun can make oxygen because by assembling small elements together and squeezing them together via a process called nuclear synthesis, you can actually make bigger and bigger chemicals. And all of the complex atoms in our bodies, like the carbon, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and all those kind of things, those elements got made in stars sometime billions of years ago in the early universe. So the stuff we're actually made of was made in a star. Some stars not dissimilar to our own sun. Some stars a lot bigger than our own sun that blew themselves to pieces catastrophically in what's called a supernova. And so we are effectively, as Moby, uh, Moby the uh, musician, said, we're all children of the stars. Mm. Let's go to the phones now because we've got Tony on the line. Hello, Tony. Good evening. Hello there. What's your question for Dr Chris? Lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, well, it's really about meat. 
when I was young, we used to eat it rare. Nowadays, it seems most of the uh, people tell, you know, when you buy it, to cook it till it's brown. Why is this? I mean, I'm still alive. <laughs> Chris. Hello, Tony. One of the reasons why people actually a, a long time ago evolved to start eating meat and cooking meat is that cooking is a very good way to sterilise pathogens. Now, meat's high in protein. It's got lots of other goodies in it, like iron, because of the blood that's in there and the what are called cytochromes, the enzymes in the meat, the muscle protein, muscle cells. And those things can sustain very well microorganisms. And there are also various parasites, things like toxoplasmosis and various worms that can live inside meat yeah. in muscle. And so if you just eat meat rare or you don't cook it there's a risk that you could acquire those parasites or if the meat has become infected with something because it sustains the growth of bacteria and microorganisms so well you could then get infected with those microorganisms so if you cook the meat you can deactivate the toxins you can deactivate some of the microorganisms if not uh, most of them and you can also deactivate parasites the other thing that cooking does is, of course, it helps to make meat taste nice. And we have evolved to like many of those complex tastes that go along with cooking. And it was a French chemist uh, called Maillard who worked in Paris in the early 1900s who actually gave his name to what's known as the Maillard reaction. And the Maillard reaction is when you heat something to more than 148.9 degrees, I think it is, and when that temperature is achieved sugar molecules, glucose, will react with protein molecules and you get these glycoprotein adducts and a caramelization reaction can also occur and these chemicals have a delicious taste and as a result it gives the food a nice flavour and it makes us want to eat it. So the fact that we like those flavours so much argues that uh, we have a penchant or an evolved tendency to want to eat cooked meat because it's probably safer. And so for that reason, uh, we tend to favour cooking meat, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the bottom line is that you're probably rendering something, excuse the pun, which is uh, potentially bad for you uh, into something that's going to be a lot safer for you, but that's no guarantee, because the same organisms that um, squirt some of these toxins into meat um, when the meat is uncooked some of those toxins can survive the cooking process, so it's not a guarantee that it'll be safe, but it certainly removes some of the uncertainty. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Enjoy whatever you're cooking. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Now, let's go uh, to a question here that's come in from uh, Leanne uh, in Gillingham. She says, um, why is it bad to give young children coffee? Chris. Well, I know that if I give my two young children coffee, then it makes them hyper and they won't go to bed. I think they've got enough energy as it is. They put the rest of us to shame. Hmm. And if you give them coffee, then it will give them even more energy and they'll probably have even more energy to knacker me out with. Um, I don't think there's actually a physical reason why you shouldn't give children coffee. Um, I think it's more just a hyperactivity type thing that they will, they will become a bit hyper. Um, coffee is addictive because caffeine is an addictive drug. Uh, some people say that it has withdrawal effects when you stop taking it, and for that reason you could view coffee as and caffeine as addictive. There's no actual physical health consequences that we know of, though, and lots of young children do, do drink tea and coffee quite safely, and the point is if they're drinking tea and coffee, they're not drinking sugary fizzy drinks that will do two things, one, rot their teeth, and two, make them put on lots of weight, which is extremely bad for them. So I would say that coffee and tea are probably actually the lesser of two evils.
Let's go to this next one. This has come in uh, on email. Uh, it's from Mike Burton. Chris, he says, um, is it more efficient to run a car on half or a full tank of fuel? I've often wondered that, Chris. Well, there's no straightforward answer to this. Uh, the point is that when you fill your car up with fuel, you're adding a lot of weight to the car. You're adding probably the equivalent weight in a big tank of a person. So it's mm -hmm. like carrying around an extra passenger. And because the car is on wheels, and because there is a mass in the car, there are going to be losses, in other words, frictional losses and other inertial losses associated with carting around that extra weight. Those losses are going to include stopping and starting the car, you're going to wear your brakes out more, so that's going to cost more money, you're going to burn more fuel, accelerating that fuel from a standstill, and so on. So, on the one hand, carrying around the least mass or weight in the car that you can is going to minimise the weight that you're transferring around with you and therefore increase the efficiency of the car. So minimising mass and therefore minimising the amount of fuel you take for any journey is going to give you the most economic uh, way to travel. But you have to then factor in, well, do I have to fill up the car much more often because I'm driving around with much less fuel in it? So if you live in the middle of nowhere and it's a very long detour to go and keep filling up at the garage, then now the money that you save not lugging this extra fuel up to speed because you're driving around with a half-empty tank is more than offset by the detour you now have to make to go and fill the car up. So there's no real straightforward answer, but I think put simply, if you're just doing backwards and forwards from home to work and it's a fairly routine and short journey and you're not likely to have to make a big detour to a garage to keep filling your car up, then running your car around with the least amount of fuel in it to safely complete the journey there and back is actually the best way to do it because you won't be carting around loads of mass uh, that you otherwise wouldn't do. Hmm. Let's get to the phones now because um, over there in Dunstable we've got Mark on the line. Good evening, Mark. Hello, good evening, Sue. Hi, what's Hello, your... Dr Chris. What's your question, Mark? Um, the question is... I've been stung twice by bees. Immediately, my eyes felt like somebody rubbed salt in them. My nose started running and I got an itchy throat. Would you say that was an allergic reaction? Hmm, OK, interesting one. Chris, what do you reckon? Antihistamines are actually the way forward if you think there might be an, an allergy to a sting because when a wasp or a bee sting you, one of the things they actually put into you is histamine. It's in the things that they inject. They also encourage your own cells in your skin, called mast cells, to release your body's own histamine, which then comes out into the local area. But when people have an allergic reaction, you can actually have something called anaphylaxis. And this is where there is a very, very vigorous immune response, which is characterised by huge releases of histamine and other inflammatory chemicals, not just where the sting is, but all around the body. And what's slightly worrying about what Mark said is that he didn't just get symptoms where the sting was in his hand, he actually developed symptoms systemically around his body, his eyes, maybe his throat and so on. And that suggests that that may have been a systemic allergic response. We don't really understand exactly why some people develop these very profound, very strong reactions to certain things in the environment. A very good example is people who are allergic to nuts, and especially peanuts, for example. Children who develop a peanut allergy, uh, for instance, will say that they've never had a problem before. They, they ate a tiny amount of a nut, and then all of a sudden their mouth swoll, their tongue swoll, their throat swoll up, their face swoll, and their, their eyes closed up. Very, very vigorous reaction. 
no one actually understands exactly why this happens, except that it's associated with a very profound immune response which involves the release of massive amounts of these inflammatory chemicals like histamine. So the safest thing to advise Mark is to take some antihistamines if you're going to be going out into an area where there may be things that could sting you, given that you have had this kind of reaction in the past which could suggest there may be an, an allergy state to the sting. And if you're really worried about it, go and see a doctor who could refer you to an allergy specialist. And it may even be that if you have got a very severe allergy, uh, then you could carry around one of these EpiPens, which has uh, an epinephrine, adrenaline, in it. And this can be injected in emergencies if you do think that the allergic reaction is running out of control. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now then, there's a lovely email that's just come in here, uh, Dr. Chris, which um, is from Mo in Rochester. He says, my question is, which is potentially safer, kissing a stranger in a bar or touching a door handle at a public restroom? Thanks a ton. Mo from Rochester. Good question. Chris? Mm. I think it would depend on where the door handle was. Yep. The door handle of a toilet in a public place is probably a very bad thing to touch because when you've got lots and lots of people going through those toilets usually and this is my bugbear the doors are set up so that you have to touch the handle on the way out yes how daft is that yeah because assuming that ma the majority of people actually wash their hands using the toilet and are therefore practitioners of good hygiene there will be some filthy handed people that won't wash their hands after using the toilet and they will just touch the handle so the hard work of all of those hand washers is immediately undone because the bugs that that person may have on their hand including things like norovirus norovirus is incredibly infectious you only need between maybe one and ten particles of this virus which is just some thirty thousandth of a millimeter across and you'll get infected and it can also survive seven transfers at least from say one surface to another so one person's hand to a surface to another person's hand to a door handle and so on so that door handle in that public lavatory is likely to have some pretty grotty things on it because some people may not have washed their hands on the way out and therefore touching that you have probably a reasonable risk of picking up something the things you're going to pick up though would they be lifelong and have consequences for you they probably might make you quite ill but only transiently, probably, if you're otherwise healthy. But if you kiss someone random in a bar, what could happen to you then? Well, uh, you could catch some of the same bugs that are on the door handle of that uh, toilet door because people, if they have been ill recently, may still have some of the particles, especially if they've been sick, for example, in their mouth or around their mouth or on their skin. Or if they've, if they've touched something and then touched their face, they can actually have the particles on there. So there's a, there's a small risk of that. They may also, though, have other things lurking. And the viruses uh, are the real kings of exploiting this particular domain, the, the up-close and personal domain, and especially members of the herpes virus family. So I would say that uh, there's a reasonable risk, if you snog someone in a bar, that you're going to be exposed to at least two different herpes viruses. One of them is herpes simplex virus type 1, and herpes simplex virus type 1 causes cold sores. About 80% of the adult population have antibodies to it indicating they're already infected but that means that one person in five 
doesn't have it, and therefore if you're that one person and you snog someone, there's an 80% chance you're going to snog someone who has got herpes. And just as James Bond said, diamonds are forever, herpes is for life. And once you've been infected with herpes simplex, it lives in your nervous system, and periodically it comes back out of the nerves it, li it likes to hide in, and it produces virus particles in your saliva. And it can occasionally cause little ulcers in the mouth, but you can have no symptoms whatsoever and have this virus coming out in your saliva. So if you snog someone, you could get it. The other virus that does a similar sort of thing that's also a member of the same family of viruses is Epstein-Barr virus, EBV. And it's got a cousin called cytomegalovirus, CMV. And both of these viruses are also in saliva, and you could pick those up. And they both cause glandular fever-type illnesses with swollen glands, high temperature, sore throat for a while, headache, feel really grotty, and then you have it for the rest of your life and you're potentially able to infect other people. Then there are things like hepatitis B, thankfully very rare in this country, but in some countries maybe one person in ten might be carrying it. So uh, there are risks of snogging random people in bars, but usually most people will size up the person they're about to snog in the bar and think, do they look like a grotty member of society or do they look like a nice person <laughs> worth a snog? And if they look like a nice person worth a snog, they'll probably snog them. But the likelihood is that they'll have some of these infections, but not the really serious stuff. So I'd say if I had to choose, I'd probably kiss someone in a bar compared with kissing the door handle of a lavatory. Right, let's go to the text. Uh, Billy from Ditchingham, Chris, has asked, which way does the blood flow around the body and why? Well, actually, it was a Cambridge man who... Uh, was one of the first people to describe this phenomenon. It was William Harvey, and you can find lots of roads around Cambridge and lecture theatres and classrooms and things named after William Harvey, who was a physician. And uh, rumour has it that he cut himself and uh, saw blood coming out and realised that blood must be flowing around the body. And he then considered, well, we know that blood leaves the heart in these big arteries. We know it comes back in these veins, and therefore there must be some connection between the artery and the vein and the concept of the capillary, tiny blood vessels that actually spread out into a very dense meshwork around all the tissues to get the blood very close to the tissue so that it can surrender its oxygen and pick up CO2 and other waste products and cart it away back into the veins. That's actually how that concept was born. And so scientists did have um, some concept that blood had to be flowing out of arteries. They knew that it flowed back along veins because they could follow the plumbing in the body but actually how the two were united took William Harvey's brain a few hundred four or five hundred years ago to work that one out um, so that's the direction that blood flows out of the left side of your heart into your main blood vessel your aorta which uh, it flows about 30 meters a second the pulse wave down there um, gets through the aorta this becomes uh, or goes into branches which are smaller arteries and then those arteries turn into what are called arterioles which are smaller arteries still they then give rise to met arterioles which are um, if you like the valves upstream of very tiny vascular beds which supply capillary beds which go through tissues and muscles and supply them with oxygen and they all gather back together at venules tiny veins which then unite to make small veins which unite to make big veins which unite to make your vena cava your inferior vena cava for the bottom half of your body and your superior vena cava for the top half of your body and they flow back into the other side of your heart into your right atrium where the blood's all gathered together again squirted round your lungs out of the lungs and back into the left side of the heart and the cycle begins again
Now, it's a good one here from uh, Sue, which has come in on the text. And she says, if we captured the methane produced by ruminants um, and being set free as the permafrost melts and burned it, would it be better for the atmosphere? Chris. Well, there's a couple of issues there. Um, What Sue is uh, hinting at is the gas methane which is produced by ruminant animals chiefly cows but other things do it too and it's no uh, lie that the cows and other animals that we grow on earth purely for human nutrition probably contribute something like 20 to 25 percent of the greenhouse gas emissions that are attributable to us on the planet every single year so if we stopped keeping all these cows and sheep we would instantly mitigate our CO2 output or our carbon output and our, glo- our greenhouse output by about 25% without question. And the reason that these animals produce all these gases is because cows, people think cows eat grass. Actually, cows eat bacteria. And what I mean by that is that cows have in their stomachs giant fermenting vessels because when they take into their bodies uh, grass, they actually are feeding bacteria that live in their stomachs. The bacteria eat the grass and then the dead bacteria are eaten by the cow. And in the process of that digestion of the grass, the bacteria pump out waste products, which include CO2, carbon dioxide, and also methane, CH4. And the cows burp this out and they fart it out. And it goes up into the atmosphere where it behaves in a greenhouse capacity. It warms up the earth. So if you could capture all of that, or we all went vegetarian overnight, then you could have a dramatic impact on the amount of greenhouse gas being produced. It's not practical to expect everyone to go vegetarian and do that overnight therefore we have to look at other ways people are investigating various foodstuffs that you could feed these cows and other ruminants in order to reduce the production of these gases by bacteria there are some things being investigated that might make that possible um, one other point that's, that was made is, is what about the permafrost and this is an important concept um, there is locked away in the ground huge amounts of organic material and in places like Siberia where the ground temperature never gets above freezing or at least hasn't for a long, long time, that organic material cannot be broken down by microorganisms in the soil, the usual things that break down organic material and return it in, in the form of carbon and, and other sorts of materials into the atmosphere, CO2 and, and so on. As temperature rises, though, that permafrost melts, and this now makes available these materials, this organic matter which is embedded in the ground, and microorganisms can begin to break it down. And one of the things they produce when they break it down, because usually they're breaking it down in the absence of oxygen, in other words anaerobically, is methane. And so there are huge amounts of methane effectively locked away chemically in permafrosts. And if we're not careful... As the Earth warms up, this will melt more permafrost, this will release more methane, which will in turn make the Earth even warmer, which will in turn lead to more melting of more permafrost, and it goes on in a vicious cycle. And scientists are really worried about this, because if we get to a point where the Earth warms too much, suddenly it goes into a vicious feedback circle where things just go hotter and hotter and hotter, and we can't control it. So they're trying to understand exactly what the risk is and what the mitigating Uh, factors might be here um, but it is a very real threat and people are looking at this actively at the moment Mm. all right let's go straight to the phones now because alan is there from norfolk hello alan hello all right okay you're through to dr chris hello dr chris hi alan dr chris i've suffered from psoriasis for many years and recently i was speaking to an indian gentleman who was telling me of some cream 
So he gave me a sample of this cream to try, and it was marvellous. Now, what I'd like to know, is there any way I can take what small amount I have left to a, a laboratory and find out exactly what this is? My suspicion is that what you were given was a sample of a steroid. Um, steroids being things like glucocorticoids, anti-inflammatory uh, acting drugs. And the reason psoriasis is a problem is because the skin cells in the affected areas are turning over far too fast and there's probably an immune driving um, of that turnover of cells. And if you put an anti-inflammatory agent like a steroid onto the affected area, it damps down the immune response this slows down the cell turnover and the psoriasis gets better. But I should say it's a little bit dangerous to go and get a drug off of somebody that you don't know what it is, put it on yourself and then take a risk like that because it could have been anything. And it would be much safer actually to go and see your GP who can probably Im immediately tell you I can give you something for your psoriasis and if they can't they can refer you to a dermatologist. Psoriasis is very common and it's very easy to control with a whole raft of very good uh, agents that are out there with very few side effects and they can make people feel so much better and so much happier very very quickly so what I'd urge you to do actually rather than go for any tests or anything is to go and see your GP and get referred to a dermatologist if the GP can't help you but you'll definitely get probably a steroid cream or there are lots of other things that, that are not even steroids that can make psoriasis much better much more quickly. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs> <laughs>